0: As best I understand, he said it right, so. If you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to Matthew's Gospel, page 703 in the church Bibles, Matthew chapter 26, and in just a moment, we're going to begin reading from verse 30, excuse me, Matthew 27, I'm sorry, (laughs) Matthew chapter 7, page 705. One page over we're going to read beginning in verse 32 when we're through this evening if you have a question about anything that has happened or about Jesus I'd be happy to try to answer those questions for you when we're through let's hear the word of the Lord as they were going out they met a man from Cyrene named Simon and they forced him to carry the cross They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there, and above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. For he said, I am the Son of God. In the same way, the robbers who were crucified with him also heaped insults at him. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, He's calling Elijah. Immediately one of them ran, got a sponge, he filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a stick and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. May God give us understanding of it this evening. So before we pray, it's not my purpose to expound line by line the verses which we've just read, but... Rather, to give our attention to the central theme of these verses, the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross for our sins. Let's, let's pray together. Well, God and Father, may your written word be our rule, your Holy Spirit our teacher, the cross our only boast, and your greater glory our supreme concern. For Jesus' sake, we would ask these things. Amen. There's a truth which is central to the Christian faith. It is part of the central message of the church. It's a truth which is covered in blood and surrounds Good Friday. The truth is the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And his cross is so central to us Christianity makes no sense whatsoever if the cross is not in her daily diet, in every one of her lessons, and in the church's very DNA. If you like, the power of the Christian life is grounded only in the cross. Paul, a follower of Jesus, said in 1 Corinthians, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, in light of this, it shouldn't surprise us at all that as we look into our world, in this age of um, self-empowerment, uh, self-development, and self-advancement, we, we find it an increasingly frustrated and anxious place, which is finding it harder and harder to, to make sense out of life at all. Yeah, there are diversions which divert, but they're only diversions. And whatever they help, um, whatever help they bring, if you would, it's always short-lived. And since Jesus said that he himself is the life and his death explains life, the reason why so many cannot make sense of the meaning and significance of life is because they've never come to wrestle with the meaning and significance of the death of Jesus Christ. Because in the death of Jesus Christ, there is the answer to the significance of life and what comes after death as well. So the frustration, we'll say, and dissatisfaction, and even uh, depression, at least in the West, that is so apparent in so many modern men and women concerning uh, the meaning of life, the significance of life, is rooted in the fact that they either very, uh, know very little of the meaning of the death of Jesus, or have not as of yet begun to understand at all the significance of the death of Jesus. So this Good Friday evening, I want to proclaim to you with God's help as clearly as I can the significance of the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. And to some of us, this might be a well-worn path. To others, you might be given truth this evening that you've never honestly thought about in your life. So if that's you, I'm very thankful that you've come. Now as we consider the death of Jesus Christ, we must see that when Jesus was taken up to Pilate, it was a complete moral disgrace. It was a moral disgrace brought about by legal fiction. Legal fiction as there was nothing in all those proceedings that could be understood as justice. It would have been bad enough if, if he would have been only subject to the beat down that he endured. Right? The ramming of the crown of thorns pressed down on his head. Or the striking of his head with a staff again and again. The spitting, the mocking, the taunting from the crowds. That would have been bad enough. But for this Christ to be subject to the greatest form of punishment of death man has probably ever produced would drive any thinking person to ask the question, what in the world is going on here? After all, history tells us that not only Bible history, but secondary history tells us that Jesus was a good man. He healed sick people. He healed the blind. This was the Jesus Acts ten twenty. 10 and 38 went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. This was the Jesus who fed 5000 hungry people for free. This is the Jesus who forgave his enemies. This is the Jesus who took that adulterous woman at the well and transformed her life forever. This Jesus did not deserve to die. And certainly not by a crucifixion. But what do we know? Well, we know that the Praetorium Guard at the command of a, a confused and kind of cow towing pilot, and to the delight of the crowds, he laid the body pressed down on the cross, on the ground. They plunged the nails through wrist and feet. And once his body was secure, they pulled the cross up and they plunged the cross down in that pre dug hole, and surely his body shook. And then he was left there. He was left there for as long as it took for his life to be taken away in unthinkable pain, in in excruciating pain. Indeed, our English word for excruciating comes from the same root word as comes the word crucifixion. And we understand why. This death of Jesus Christ was an undeserved death. Equally, this death of Jesus Christ was one of the most famous deaths in the history of the world. Millions of people, now just think, millions of people tonight will be observing the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, this is an exceptional thing that so much time and so much attention be given to this one individual's death. After all, we know what the modern mantra is don't think about their death, we need to celebrate their life. Okay, we understand that, but that wasn't so for the gospel writers. For example, 50% of the gospel of John is devoted to the death of Jesus Christ. Matthew's gospel, 40%. And Mark's gospel, 60% devoted to the death of Christ. And Luke, about a third of its record is given to the passion of Jesus Christ. Now, why is that so? Well, the reason why that is so is for the Christians. The cross of Jesus Christ is the decisive event in all of human history. Again, The cross of Jesus Christ is the decisive event of all of human history. We we may study history all through high school, university, and beyond, and we will never understand it completely and correctly until the day by God's mercy, it dawns on us that the cross is the decisive event in all human history. Not just church history, but all history. Before the cross, all of human history, the Bible says, was being orchestrated towards it. And after the cross, all of human history will be judged by it. This is it. The cross is the decisive event in all human history. This is Ephesians 1.11, the working out to the praise of Christ's glory because of what was being accomplished on the cross. What is pictured in the Old Testament again and again is performed in the New Testament just once. And if that's true, and the Word of God says it's true, then the question should come. And it's a pretty sensible question Tell me what happened on the cross when Jesus died. And that's a great question. Many people have many different answers. Here's our answer When Jesus died on the cross, he offered himself up as a sacrifice bearing the punishment due to sinners, shedding his blood and fulfilling the plan of God whereby men and women and young people may be reconciled to God. Now, if you heard that, you would realize that a reconciliation needed to take place. That there must be hostility then between God and man and hostility between man and God. And if you're thinking about that, you'd be right. So that's our first point, just three. They're pretty short, not too short. Number one, the problem of sin. Now, it's never very popular to speak on sin, nor is it popular to say that there's enmity between God and humanity and enmity between humanity and God because of human sin. However, the cross of Jesus Christ makes no sense at all unless we understand what the Bible has to say about sin. And because, and please listen carefully, because our culture deadens itself to the problem of sin because it has explained it away in multiple ways in terms of the environment we were raised in, parental problems, psychological problems, emotional problems, and every other manner of explanation. It becomes irrelevant and unnecessary to our culture to hear the good news of God's answer to our sin. So the cross of Jesus Christ then is commercialized, it's trivialized, And it's downsized, here in America at least, into one more three-day weekend. But, says a voice from the past. This is a pastor who lived a long, long time ago, Cornelius Planting. Listen to what he says. To speak of God's grace without sin is to trivialize the cross of Christ. What is all the ripping and thrashing and Golgotha about? A loss of awareness about the devastating nature of sin makes all the ripping and thrashing of the Son of God, the blood, sweat, spit, and ridicule, incomprehensible and merely grotesque. A failure to take sin serious enough renders the crucifixion incidental and excessive. The sober truth is, without the full disclosure of sin, the gospel grace becomes unnecessary. And finally, uninteresting. Therefore, men and women first must be convinced that sin is the problem they're dealing with. But by and large, when when men and women think about their problem, their sin, our sin, is not on our list. So humanity is on this collision course. What men and women think versus what the Bible says. So what does the Bible say about sin? Well, it says a lot of things. It says, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In other words, the, the passing mark was here. We scored down here and we can't close the gap. Therefore, we have a problem. The Bible says that we commit iniquity, which is to say there is this bent in us to go our own way rather than the straight and narrow way of God. The Bible also says that we are transgressors, that we overstep God's rule, we break His commands, and we are partial to our own wills, all of which is to say, every one of us in this room, beginning with myself, is a lawbreaker. Now that would be bad enough, but what the Bible also says is not only do we have this problem, but it also says we will be eternally condemned by God on account of that problem, in other words, if we don't get this sorted out, we're finished. Furthermore, those sins which separate us from God pay wages. And the wage is death. And sinners die. Die physically and die spiritually and ultimately eternally. Because when you combine physical death with spiritual death, you have eternal death. And eternal death is eternally alive, separated from God with the punishment due. The Bible goes on to say that we are all by nature spiritually dead until Christ makes us alive. So we will all one day physically die. If we die physically without being made alive spiritually, we will die eternally. When we die physically, if we've been made alive in Christ, then eternity is in heaven with Jesus and it's all good forever. Jesus said, John 3:36, he who has a son has eternal life. But if we die physically and we haven't been made alive spiritually, Jesus goes on to say, he who does not obey him, obedience being a sign of spiritual life, he who does not obey him shall not see life for the wrath of God rests on him. So Isaiah was right when he wrote on the human condition. We read it in the beginning. All we like sheep have gone astray. Now let me ask you a question. Have you ever tried corralling sheep? Once really hard. That's yeah, a funny thought, isn't it? I was probably wearing khaki pants and a sweater when I did it. Who knows? You try to get the sheep together. They scatter, and then they go their own way. And that's the picture the Word of God gives on humanity. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way. Now, now just hold that phrase in your mind for a moment. Each of us have turned to our own way. And I want you to think with me. Not only have we gone our own way, it could be argued what the Bible calls sin. We've made the philosophy of life here in America. Namely, what is it about freedom in America? It's the freedom to be our own person, to do our own thing, and to go our own way without any interference from anyone, least of all God. So to be truly free, we're told, we must do our own thing and go our own way. But the Bible says no. You see, that is the problem. We have gone our own way, and in going our own way, we court death. So why is it that we're in bondage to ourselves? Why is it that we can't be reconciled with other people? Why is it that the will of God is so often the last in line in our mind? Why is it that we are so often unhappy? Why is it that we have named this problem a thousand different ways? The Bible says the problem is sin. Now the Bible also says God has a plan in relationship to that problem. Man's problem, God's plan. That's our second point. And God's plan wasn't a plan B. It wasn't a plan he made up quick because he never saw sin coming in the world. Listen to your Bible, 1 Peter One Twenty. He, Jesus Christ, was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. So Peter makes it pretty clear. Before the world was created, God the Father chose God the Son to fulfill the function as the Savior for sinners. So that made Jesus a man with a mission. And, and you can't read the Gospels truthfully without seeing that Jesus' mission is to go to Jerusalem and die for sin. So let me ask you a question. Have you ever read the Gospels that way? Have you read the Gospels just trying to track the journey of Jesus to Jerusalem to die? Let me just give you one illustration in Mark's Gospel, just with three verses. Mark chapter 8, verse 31. He began to teach his disciples, The Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders, and the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. Chapter 9, verse 31, he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he's killed, after three days he will rise. Mark ten thirty-two. they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to them, saying, We are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. So you see, clearly, Jesus was a man on a mission. He is unlike any other religious leader who ever walked the face of this earth. Jesus Christ is incomparable. Who do you know in all of history who lived in a way that moved towards this conclusion. There's no one. No one. So you cannot jump well you can't lump Jesus in a museum with other religious leaders. We can't line him up with others and say, "Okay, pick pick one because they're all the same." That will never be. Jesus Christ must be dealt with individually. He was a man on a mission and unlike other men, his mission was accomplished. When he prays towards the end of his life, he says, and this is in John 17 to the Father, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. So Jesus would die. But he wouldn't die as a helpless victim of evil forces. He would not die as a victim of chance or fate. Jesus died freely, embracing the purpose of his Father for the salvation of sinners. So let let me put it as clear as I can. 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ died on a cross in order that boys and girls and teenagers and men and women might hear this message even tonight and the lights will go on and they'll be transformed for all eternity. Jesus died in order to fulfill the Father's purpose to redeem a people for Himself who would be His very own with their sins forgiven. And loved ones, that's why no religious external routine can answer the thirst in our hearts. No religious routines will be able to take away our sin. It might quiet it down for a bit, but not forever. And any attempt to suck the juice, as it were, out of religious works and religious effort and externalism will leave us high and dry compared to eating from the bread of life and drinking the water of life, the Lord Jesus Christ, who said, if you drink him, then then we will never thirst again. And I, I, me, now, for four decades, have been serving Jesus Christ. And after doing that, I can say two things with complete certainty. The first you'll know for sure. Number one, I am clearly a great sinner. Number two, I have found nothing, nothing as satisfying as the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's a problem we face. The problem is sin. There is a purpose God has, which was to send Jesus as the Savior Finally, and briefly, there was a punishment which had to be endured. And of course, the punishment involved the shedding of the very blood of Jesus Christ. Now, it's not easy to say, but it's still true. Christianity is a bloody religion in this sense. The history of Christianity is filled with blood in this sense. In fact, more than anything else, the Bible speaks of the blood of Christ accomplishing for us the benefits which belong to our salvation three times more than the cross, five times more than his death. In fact, just, just listen to your Bible. The Christian has been purchased by Christ's blood. Acts twenty twenty-eight. We have been atoned for by Christ's blood, Romans three twenty five. We've been declared righteous, justified by Christ's blood, Romans five twenty nine. We have redemption through Christ's blood, Ephesians one seven. We've been brought near to God. We have peace with God. Our conscience is cleansed, sanctified, ransomed, set free from sin. We are elect by Christ's blood. Ephesians 1.7, Colossians 1.20, Hebrews 9.14, Hebrews 13.12, and 1 Peter 1, 1.2. The writers were very concerned with the blood of Jesus Christ. Now this may be far too simple, but just let me close with this. You have to ask yourself the question, why all this messy blood talk? Now think about that. And think about how some of us used to answer that question. So Christ bled because he was struck, he was pierced, and he was smeared, uh, speared on the cross for our sins. And loved ones, that is a graphic reminder of the terribleness And the dreadfulness of each and every sin. So this Easter, like all Easter's, we're confronted with this fundamental question. Why should one so perfect be met with such a cruel punishment? That's the question every man and every woman must ask. Why a dead Christ? Why did someone who lived so perfectly die so horribly? And if you've never asked that question you don't understand the gospel. You can't become a Christian without facing that question. So, so why this bloody mess? Why the mess? It's simple. Christ died for our sins. Now again, let me take you back to what you used to think. All the religious rigmarole you used to have. Yeah, Jesus was alive, and yeah, Jesus died, and yeah, he was buried, and yeah, he was crucified, but, but we need a few more things to make it all right. No, no. The problem was our sin. The purpose of God was his son to have a body and die in it, bearing in his body our sin. The punishment was his blood spilt as he died on the cross. Christ himself 1 Peter 2:24 He bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. And you know when the truth of that dawned on me as a young boy as a young boy actually in church when I heard the gospel preached I knew I was a sinner. I mean I wasn't a hell's angel or anything like that because I hadn't had time for that yet. But I was a disobedient to my parents. I did have bad thoughts. I did say bad words and I was a horrible little brother and God showed me my sin and he showed me that Jesus died to bear my sin and I said on that summer night in Brian Florida excuse me Homestead Florida Brian Baptist Church I said Jesus Christ I'm a sinful person and you died for my sin please forgive me and live in me and make me the kind of person you want me to be and Jesus has been honoring sincere prayers like that ever since Now I know some of you, but I don't know all of you. So here's my question. Are you ready? Are you ready tonight to bow to Jesus Christ? Be in no doubt coming to faith in Christ first requires a personal knowledge of the problem of your sin, the plan of God to save you from it, and the punishment that Jesus Christ endured because of it as you surrender your life to the man on the cross. We live in a crazy world. Jesus will conquer the world, but he's doing it through weakness, through the cross, because Jesus, as king, wasn't the kind of king who wanted his people to die for him, but he was the king who would die for them. He is so precious. He's my friend. He's coming back. Be ready. Be ready. Let's pray together. Well, Father, help us please now as we sing and then prepare for your table. And Father, thank you for your mercy. And thank you for the cross. And Jesus, thank you for your great, great love. Amen. Amen.